0: Written and directed by Terence Malick, Badlands was made under such strange circumstances that by the time the five months of principal photography had wrapped in late 1972, almost all of the original crew and their replacements had quit the production. Officially budgeted at $250,000, that figure only made sense because the crew had agreed to defer their fees until the independently financed film had secured a distributor. But problems arose as soon as the very first day, because the crew immediately sensed that Malik, who was directing for the very first time, had no idea what he was doing. Malik insisted on shooting each scene in sequence, which may explain why the film credits no less than three cinematographers, which also may explain why the production fell so far behind schedule that the money ran out and Malik was compelled to fund the remainder himself. And when he finally made it to the editing suite, he spent 10 months wading through 2 million feet of footage, Despite these setbacks, Badlands was given the prestigious closing night slot at the 11th New York Film Festival, which means that the evening of October 13, 1973 saw one of the greatest debuts in American film history. Earlier that same week, Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets had wowed audiences with its raucous presentation of small-time mafiosi in Little Italy. But, while Scorsese's picture is still undoubtedly a landmark, it was Malick's quiet story about two young mass murderers on the run, that had the festival goers all abuzz. Why? It's treatment of violence. Little did I realize that what began in the alleys and back ways of this quiet town would end in the badlands of Montana. Violence has been a distinguishing characteristic of American cinema ever since Edwin S. Porter delivered the Great Train Robbery back in 1903. There, the bandits intercept the train, kill one of the staff, blow up the safe, take the valuables and make their escape. Then a posse springs into action, gives chase, the bandits are shot, and order is restored. But it is the film's final image that has long since proven to be its most memorable and challenging moment. Having been killed just minutes before, the leader of the bandits, Justus D. Barnes, is mysteriously resurrected. He stands before the camera, stares straight into its lens, raises his gun, and fires. In 1903, That action was shockingly real, yet today it is clearly a metaphor. The image engages us directly, and assaults us figuratively. Yet, precisely because we have not suffered any physical injuries, what we experience is a vicarious thrill. It is only missing one element. With the advent of sound in 1927, the blaze of gunfire intensified the thrill, and what that delivered was a sensorial experience that excited filmmakers, but deeply worried lawmakers. Which is why, on July 1st, 1934, the Hayes Code was drawn up with the express aim of severely restricting the depiction of violence on screen. It remained in place for over three decades, but by 1966, such were the changes coursing through American society that the Code was regarded as obsolete. In its place came the current system of voluntary rating that not only eased the restrictions, but also radically changed Hollywood cinema. If they move, kill them. And the following years saw the release of Bonnie and Clyde, Night of the Living Dead, The Wild Bunch, The Honeymoon Killers, Dirty Harry, A Clockwork Orange, Straw Dogs, The Devils, The Last House on the Left, Walking Tall and Death Wish. Each of those titles in their own way pushed the boundaries of screen violence. But while some of those titles were conscious enough to offer up self-critiques, I was cured, all right. Others exploited the new classifications to offer a little more than depictions of cruelty. Ah! He gets hurt, mother. Just hold still. Don't move. What do you want? Don't jive, mother. You know what we want. Hey, mother. Look at the artiste doing his art. is that beautiful, mother? But no matter to which category those titles belong. The main problem faced by all of them was how to portray screen violence. Let us remind ourselves that films were originally called motion pictures, and the motion and furious energy that often comes with violence is not easy to neutralise on screen. And the New York Festival audience understood that neutralisation was the very reason why Badlands had broken new ground. Before becoming a filmmaker, Terence Malick had been a philosophy student and a Rhodes Scholar at MIT. After graduation, he tried lecturing and then some journalism, but his brilliant intellect couldn't settle. Little wonder, here was a man in his early 20s who had not only translated from German Martin Heidegger's dense treatise The Essence of Reason, but then had had the temerity to add into the margins his own critique of the phenomenologist. After that, it came as a complete surprise to Malik's friends that he was drawn to cinema, and in particular, the notorious Charles Starkweather and Caroline Fugate case. In 1958, the pair had gone on a killing spree across Nebraska and Wyoming, murdering 11 people, including Fugate's mother, stepfather and baby half-sister. Starkweather was all of 19, Fugate barely 14. In Malik's film, Starkweather becomes Kit Carruthers, played with a studied indifference by Martin Sheen, and Fugate, Holly Sargas delivered in a suitably wide-eyed performance by Sissy Spacek. Kit works on a garbage truck, and one day after his shift, he sees Holly on the lawn outside her house twirling her baton. The ensuing conversation becomes a relationship, but when Holly's father, played by Warren Oates, objects to a grown man dating his pubescent daughter, Kit feels he has no option but to kill Holly's father, set fire to the house, and go on the run, where he will kill a further six people. In the hands of another writer and director, the Starkweather-Fugate story would have been little more than a watered-down exploitation rerun of Bonnie and Clyde. But Malick saw it as something else. His influence were books like The Hardy Boys, Swiss Family Robinson, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. All of them dramas about innocence way in over their heads. What Malick wanted to do with the Starkweather-Fugate story was render it a fairy tale, outside time, like Treasure Island. Here is Sissy Spacek. He always uh, separated the brutality and the reality of the Starkweather incident. He separated that from what we were doing. He never said, this is that story. He didn't want us to do research. He didn't want me to try to look like Carol Ann. He, He didn't want that. But I think that as a young person, he, like the rest of the country, were... Um, affected on a very deep level. One way Malik deglamorizes the brutality is by taking the highly original step of having young Holly narrate the story. Voice over narration is by its function detached, because it provides a sense of perspective, regret, maturity, wisdom. But the close-ups of Holly as she watches Kit as he commits the murders shows us the same lack of expression that we hear in her narration. And it is that lack of expression that lack of wisdom, that lack of sustained regret that helps neutralize the violence. Holly is really bothered by the events and this is how she reacts to Kit killing her father. Daddy, this is Holly. Are you going to be okay? But it is not just Malik's decision to have a voiceover that impacts on the violence. It is the way he frames that violence and then edits it that so nullifies the impact as to make the viewer aware of what they are not feeling. What they are not feeling was the same vicarious thrill that had been delivered by every director since Edwin S. Porter. However, that is not to say that the violence is not stylized. It is very stylized because never before had American cinema depicted a character who was so nonchalant and disinterested in dispatching his victims. Kick murders never in anger but, to quote Malik himself during the press conference that followed the New York Premier, he regards his gun as a kind of magic wand that he can wave to eliminate small nuisances. Here is Martin Sheen talking about what he made of Charles Starkweather. He, he projected this very, very disarming image. It was, everybody could kind of relate to him, you know. His murder spree aside, he was very, very interesting. And he gave us an inside kind of glimpse into the very worst part of ourselves. And yet, it was so engrossing, his character, his image of himself. And it it made the country kind of step back a little bit and say, ah, we're more into image. Malik takes the time to depict in realistic terms the after-effects of a gunshot wound. Kit shoots his friend and fellow garbage man Kato, played by Ramon Bierdi. And instead of Kato dying instantly, or the story quickly cutting away to another scene, Malik takes the time to stay with him, as his life gradually ebbs away. And here is what Holly has to say about it. Kit never let on why he shot Kato. He said that just talking about it could bring us bad luck, and that right now we needed all the luck we could get. Pretty soon, Kit and Holly have amassed not only a streak of kills, but also the interest of state police and, of course, the ensuing media. And Malik hints at their emerging mythology by briefly slipping the film into black and white, not as if we were watching a newsreel, but rather that Holly were imagining how the media was reporting on their crime spree. It is as close as the young girl will ever get to any sort of awareness as to what she is party to. And as for Kit, this is about as profound as he ever gets. Try to keep an open mind. Try to understand the viewpoints of others. Consider the minority opinion. But try to get along with the majority of opinion once it's accepted. Instead, what Malik shows us are idyllic vistas through which our two young villains race on their way to commit more terrible deeds. That's Montana over there. i never been to Montana. Queen's of mine's been there, but I hadn't. Never had any reason to. The The flatlands of Montana and Wyoming are depicted as a modern-day Eden, and Malik gently reinforces a religious reading by having Holly drape a blanket about her head as if she and Kit were Mary and Joseph taking flight into Egypt. But of course, Kit and Holly don't have a child, because after they have sex, this is how they respond. Did it go the way it's supposed to? Yeah. Is that all there is to it? Yeah. Gosh, what was everybody talking about? Don't ask me. Well, I'm glad it's over. For a while, I was afraid I might die before it happened. Had a wreck or some like that. Nevertheless, the religion here serves as a harbinger for Malik's increasing fascination with the environment, as a reflection, not so much of God's presence, but mankind's disconnect from the natural world. Kit and Holly build a treehouse, not to commune with the flora and the fauna, but rather as a place to hide from the law and set up their own utopia of two. Finally, as much as a departure Badland marked in depicting violence on screen, Malik's choice of music undercuts the crimes just as much. Just as Stanley Kubrick had done in 2001 and A Clockwork Orange, so too did Malik compile a soundtrack from established composers. In this case, Eric Satie, Karl Orff, and Gunil Kietman. Which is why, after Kit murders Holly's father and sets fire to the house, we get this. And this. Which, of course, Hans Zimmer reconfigured some 20 years later, when Tony Scott commissioned him to score True Romance. That movie was written by Quentin Tarantino, and the next year another of Tarantino's scripts, about another young murderous couple on the run, Natural Born Killers, was directed by Oliver Stone. I'm not gonna make it. I'm so cold. Gonna make it, Mal. Get Mal. go get this stuff, Just Just go, go get, get stuff then. All right. That's well worth the watch. Just don't expect anything like Malik's neutralising tone.